Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. The the difficult side of the answer is defining which one because there's been so many. You know, the the issue with, uh, I think it was Mark Andreessen who said a quote that I, I really like. And it, he, did, he wasn't the one that thought of it. He was just the one that I heard it from. So forgive those who are listening that know the real source. Um, but something along the lines of that being an entrepreneur, you have to be a little bit crazy. is kind of like chewing glass where you either have to love the pain or get used to the taste of your own blood. And I think it's really true because you kind of have to have this, like this, there's this love hate relationship with the growth that happens through the conflict, but then also being dropped in the wilderness again and again and again. I mean, after a while, even if you're a really good swimmer, sometimes you just don't want to be left out in the middle of the ocean. And, and that's kind of the, the issue with, with entrepreneurship. You are listening to the High Growth Founders Podcast, where we give you unfiltered truth and ideas about accelerating the growth of your startup and becoming the founder you were born to be. No fluff, no games, just straight to business. I'm your host, Casey Jones. Through my career as a coach, consultant, advisor, and mentor, I've worked with hundreds of founders on their go-to-market strategy, building an authentic personal brand, and growing as a leader. You are here for one thing growth. And this show is dedicated to helping founders accelerate growth, period. We will dive into not only the best strategies that are working today, but discuss the biggest mistakes and failures that industry leaders have made in the past so you don't have to. So kick back, relax, and let's get into the show. You all are going to freaking love today's interview. I interviewed Evan Stewart of Basewell. His story as a founder is so incredibly powerful, um, so interesting. He's so thoughtful about what he has been through and about his journey from his first startup to his new startup, Basewell, how he thinks about it, his growth, all the rest. What's also really, really cool is his co-founder is his wife. And so he talks about what makes them amazing partners, how they think about it, what they work on together, what's next for them. And I think you all are going to learn a lot about how the two of them managed to turn kind of back to back really tough situations into tremendous growth opportunity, huge, powerful lessons for themselves as entrepreneurs, for themselves as husband and wife, and for I'm identifying, ultimately identifying where there is a, a tremendous opportunity in the marketplace. And that gave them the idea for baseball in the first place. So give this a listen. I think it's an incredible conversation, super smart, interesting guy, lots of incredible resources. He also had a crazy good list of resources for founders at the end. So make sure to listen through and capture that. Give a listen and let me know what y'all think. Okay, Evan, I'm so excited that you are here to just kick this off. Tell us a little bit about your journey as a founder. Thank you so much for having me, Casey. Uh, happy to be here. And I know we shared a little bit of time in the green room and, and this will uh, this will be a good conversation, I'm sure. So a very brief like TLDR, I was raised in an entrepreneurial family. And so uh, I had uh, two very important blessings in, in my life growing up. The first is that I certainly don't want to ignore the fact that my family was together which means that I was able to focus. And I, I like addressing that because I think a lot of people uh, neglect the, the blessing of having stability at home to be able to dream big. 
And uh, so that is something that I, I had grown up with, thankfully. But inside of that stability, there was also a second deeper context, which is um, I come from an individual or a family of entrepreneurs. So people who went out and did things. And now the very scale of the things that they did doesn't necessarily matter. What matters is that the context of my childhood was how do you go and provide a product service? How do you go and do something for someone in order to get compensated? Or when I was younger, it was to get what you want. So the context of my childhood, it was go out and do things in general, go do things, go do big things. Uh, but then the second was, is that there was uh, room to think within that context. And so growing up, I never really had a real job. I had one retail job uh, at a store, which I will not name. Um, not that it was bad, it's kind of lame uh, <laughs> for, for a while. And um, that for a couple months in high school, and, and I didn't like it. So growing up, I had all these different entrepreneurial endeavors and I started little side hustles and I was, you know, reselling technology in middle school. Like we used to buy these crates of iPods and refurbish them and then sell those. And, you know, I did the lawn mowing business thing and, and then eventually got to college and, uh, realized two things. Uh, first of all, college is awesome and it's not for me. Uh, well, and that was the second, which is that I need to do something better. I looked around my classroom. I remember this one and most people in the class were older just the school that I went to, it, it happened to be a school where a lot of people at different life uh, points went to school. And that was good data because it, it told me, Casey, that I could always go back, but maybe not, I, I might not be able to take advantage of some opportunities. So I left, I, I withdrew and uh, started a venture in real estate and uh, started with literally nothing there. Right? So I, I remember I was, there was this one point, my friend and I, we went to the store and we split peanut butter and bread so we could eat for the week because we had like, like nothing, nothing, nothing. And I didn't even have credit. So I couldn't even like take out a credit card and take on debt. No, I literally had very, very little. So the struggle was real. And, uh, but through quite a bit of hard work over the next couple of years and the reality that people don't see the 15 and 18 and 20 hour days and never going out and never partying and never traveling and never doing anything fun um, for five years. Well, that amount of diligence pays pays off and, and did pay off. And uh, the business grew to uh, what became within the top 1% of real estate books of businesses in the state of Texas. And when I decided to move away from that industry in 2018, it was merged and acquired by mm -hmm. an associate broker at Compass, which is a, a great brand. And then moved into other ventures after that. So it's been kind of an interesting journey, but <laughs> lots of trial and error, as I'm sure you can can understand. Yeah, but I love that you pointed out a couple of key things. One, your privilege of having a stable home and family life, and and also growing up with that that model of entrepreneurship. And it's really interesting. So my dad worked in corporate America and was pretty successful. And my mom was a decorator and an entrepreneur. And she always thinks that I got my kind of my business gumption and my ambition from my father. And I pointed out to her a few years ago, I was like, actually, most entrepreneurs have some entrepreneurial kind of parent or caregiver when they were kids. And I gave her credit for that. And she was completely. Like it hadn't even occurred to her because she thought, well, you know, she's like, I was decorating houses. She said, it's not, it's not the same, but it's true when you have that model of someone kind of delivering a product or service and being a little bit scrappy in how they do it. There's something that helps you realize that you can do it too and, and gets you to think sort of out of the box in that way. And so I very much agree with you. So, and also... You know, you're talking about those five or six years of peanut butter sandwiches and long hours, right? And it's, it is really tough, but a lot of the time it really pays off and it sounds like it really did for you. So I'm curious and I'm, I, I'm very passionate about this idea that 
we don't usually learn that much from the good things that happen in our life. We are not terribly introspective when something, when we have a lucky stroke, right? We tend to learn the most um, from the hard times. So I'm curious, you know, is there an experience that you you had something difficult, something challenging that ultimately taught you a lesson that turned into like serious fuel for your growth? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. The the difficult side of the answer is defining which one because there's been so many. You know, the the issue with uh, I think it was Mark Andreessen who said a quote that I, I really like, and it, he he wasn't the one that that thought of it. He was just the one that I heard it from. So forgive those who are listening that know the real source. Um, but something along the lines of that being an entrepreneur, you have to be a little bit crazy. is kind of like chewing glass where you either have to love the pain or get used to the taste of your own blood. And I think it's really true because you kind of have to have this, like this, there's this love hate relationship with the growth that happens through the conflict, but then also being dropped in the wilderness again and again and again. I mean, after a while, even if you're a really good swimmer, sometimes you just don't want to be left out in the middle of the ocean. And, and that's kind of the, the issue with, with entrepreneurship is it's the greatest personal development and growth progress, you know, program in the entire world. Uh, but it's also the one that, that, you know, most businesses don't make it out of. Um, Investopedia stated uh, that up to 85 to 90% of all businesses fail within three years and other businesses that stay, the majority of them don't even break uh, six figures, much less seven, much less eight, uh, much less go on to be the unicorn. And so um, the reason that I say that is within context is that yes, a lot of people get to be success, but, um, you know, successful in their own right. But I think a lot of the success is defined in the freedom in order to kind of live or fail by your own regard, as opposed to somebody else having, um, you know, ha having context over your life and, and over your own security. I used to say job security is just meant that someone else had the power the, to, to fire you. And that's kind of the, the, the reality of, of living in corporate America. Nothing necessarily wrong with it. But with that context, you know, there's a few in, in particular, and you'll have to forgive, uh, maybe immediately not fleshing out the idea because I, I actually haven't been asked that in quite a long time. And a lot has happened since the last time. I think um, there, there's, a, there's a maybe not one distinct event, but it's a series of events in particular that I'll link together very, very briefly because it all goes into this one giant learning experience. It just happened over a longer period of time, uh, which is tricky because sometimes we, we just like ripping off a bandaid. You just want things to, to stop. <laughs> um, so let's go back to real estate. So, you know, people saw that to your point, yes, financially it was successful, but what people didn't see was, you know, I had just married my wife and I was working. Uh, there was one day I worked uh, 43 consecutive 20 hour work days and I was so exhausted. There was one day actually, uh, Casey, I was bringing in groceries. And I actually passed out bringing in groceries, not because I was like strung out or anything, but because I was just so legitimately, truly, fully and thoroughly exhausted that I just like collapsed. And, uh, and, and not, see, not a lot of people know that because what people will see is, okay, there's a, you know, a young individual in their mid twenties and they're making decent money and you know, there's awards and accolades and all of the, all of the fluff. Right. And, and none of it actually matters. Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of recognizing the sheer exhaustion, right? A lot of people think that, oh, my business grew to the point where I could exit. It, it did. But the reason I got out was not because things were going well. It's because I hated the trap that I had built for myself, which was an environment that I couldn't escape, that I had to work through that was slowly killing me. And the only thing I had to show for it was cash. And that's not, that wasn't what I had wanted. And so within that transition, that was kind of the first point of this series of learning experiences, which is why I stated. Uh, so what do I recognize there? I recognize that what you earn and how you earn is just as important. I recognize that I wanted to stop creating labor 
to earn. And I wanted to kind of earn something once, but collect it for a long period of time. And that's usually done in software, right? I want to earn the sale one time. I want to collect for a long period of time. Real estate's a great business, but regardless of how many people you have working for you, every single month, you're back to zero. Every single year, you're back to zero. So it's this constant barrage of, hey, Casey, last year was great. Congrats. It's January 1. You suck, right? So you're back to zero. Um, I didn't want that because that just not having momentum carryover wasn't something that, that was sustainable. And I wanted sustainability. So my wife and I transitioned into a consultancy to where uh, she is uh, really masterful with operations of startup and, and small businesses. And um, I had worked on the executive side, of course. And so we, we came together and we're helping other small businesses achieve scale. And that actually began uh, some really fulfilling time, but it was also some of the hardest time because it was really the season of like wandering where my identity that I had been attached to for so long, I wasn't a part of that anymore in that real estate venture. Um, Bertie and I were learning how to work together, which we worked together exceptionally well, but you know, that was a new flow to get into. And so we did that for a few years and then 2020 happened. <laughs> and, um, what we discovered actually the, the thesis behind our, our current business, uh, was a lot more emotional than people realize. But what we had discovered was that there was this really sheer tension with how companies are empowering their people. And I won't get into necessarily our thesis, but but recognizing that tension allowed us to build solutions, um, which which snowballed into baseball today. But there's something else that happened during that time, which is like the rest of our life fell apart, right? So here's a series of events we have. I leave real estate, Brittany and I start the consultancy. We recognize an issue. The world shuts down. We start solving that issue. Um, what people didn't see behind the scenes, again, so I leave the stability of my first venture. One of the main things that we had in our consultancy to bridge communities, we were doing like large scale, you know, conferences, multi-hundred, multi-thousands of people. We were doing uh, really big events that cost quite a bit of money. And when the world shut down, that became like a black hole instead of a gold mine and just sucked a whole bunch of capital and time and energy. And then we we're finally getting out of that. And, uh, and then the ice storm of 2021 happens. This is the last year. I've never talked about this on a podcast. Uh, and we lost everything. So, uh, uh, because our, our place is totally flooded and we, we sit, we seek shelter elsewhere. And so we're exiting the consulting business. I'm already out of the real estate business. We, we finally have the space to build Basewell, and then we lose everything. Basewell is still bootstrapped. It's just this constant barrage and bombardment of like, nobody gives a shit. People don't believe in you unless you have something to show for it. But every time you get a little bit of momentum, it's like, you know, you, you lose this identity, you lose this traction. You, this, this thing that was good is now really terrible because the circumstances outside of your control. You finally have a little security at home and then home is stripped away from you. And it was just a season of multi years of stripping. And just stripping away and stripping away. And I know that was kind of a long run around a short walk type of answer because I haven't fully flushed it out yet. But but what I'm getting at here for the purpose of you and, and those that are listening is that in that time, we had really learned two important facts. Uh, the first is, and I say this in a positive way, but it'll come across negative. Just hear me out. Uh, how little everything actually matters. And what I mean by that is, is that I don't believe in the theory that like, you know, God wants you to be comfortable because then you'd never have to seek, you know, him and things outside of of yourself. I think that in reality, you learn a lot in the discomfort. And when you're comfortable, what happens is it insulates you and it insulates your ability to make really powerful decisions because you start embracing the comfort around you. And what we had noticed was the way we were communicating, the way we were building our business, the way we were attracting employees, um, all of those things had shifted when we moved from a peacetime mentality to a wartime mentality of like, okay, you know, literally everything that you have in your life, except for your relationship with your significant other is falling apart. It teaches you how to fight for what you one day want to keep. And all of that to say that coming out of that, we're able to execute on really important things that really matter. So some things that matter to us is saying no, saying no a lot, 
especially the things that take time that, that aren't a, a good use of time. Things that matter to us is protecting our house, our business, our employees, and our people. People, product, and then profits legitimately in that order uh, from a professional standpoint. And then protecting our, our house, uh, my wife and I together. Things that are, you know, basically when you're only left with the things that matter, you really build barriers to protect your, your those things that matter and then scale that. And so um, I guess that's a really long-winded way of saying, you know, really introspective on being able to fundamentally keep what, what you've been fighting for. But then also the perspective moving forward is as you get back into a running mentality, you know, we're still growing our business. We're just about to launch MVP. We're bringing, like, we're still in the very early stages of this new venture and we're more focused than ever. Like to say that I don't give a shit about anything other than like my spouse, our relationship in this company is an understatement. Like how little I care about, you know, oh, somebody doesn't like you because you can go to that party. I don't really give a shit. I have a venture to build. And, and a few years ago, I would have gone out of my way to make like other people be comfortable. And that might be really, really brash, but it's like when you're stripped of all of the things that give you that sense of comfort, the last thing you want to do is lean into the things that put you in a position to be vulnerable to begin with, if that makes sense. Yeah. Does that make sense? I know that's oh kind of long-winded. It makes a lot of sense. It wasn't long-winded at all. I think it was a really thoughtful explanation of a very complex concept and situation. And you you said a few things that really resonated with me. And and you know, what you're talking about of of when everything is falling apart, you you have to get hyper intentional about what really matters and where you spend your time. And I actually think that that's been one of the beautiful things that has come out of the last two years of this whole pandemic experience is all of a sudden, first of all, we all had to slow down in this crazy way. And and to your point, I think, you know, when you're in that hustle and bustle of going out all the time and being around people, it becomes so much easier to constantly be thinking about how you appease those people and how you do those things. And when all of that is removed, it's uncomfortable. Oh my God. Like I think a lot of us went through some some really tough times. I think in the early days of COVID, I think I had three friends that had never been on antidepressants before that went on them. But all of us sort of came face to face with the life that we had created and that we had built and the choices that we had made, that we made because someone else convinced us that we wanted them when we really didn't. And so the way you talk about coming face to face with these considerations and how challenging it is, but, but the, the fight you and your wife have kind of found in that, I think a lot of us can resonate, but it's also, you're going to inspire a lot of people with that because knowing that you can do it, knowing that you can corral that energy and that care some of us doubt that we can until we're in that situation and, and hearing how you've dealt with it, I think is, is incredible. So, t- so tell me, what is it like building a completely new style of business? It's new for both you and your wife. Doing this together and figuring it out as a team, as romantic partners and business partners. Yeah, it's an answer that that maybe not a lot of people share, but but we're blessed to be able to share it. Which is, uh, it's like literally the best the best type of relationship. Um, the number one reason why businesses fail, by the way, uh, significantly um, is disproportionate is uh, business partner issues. Right? 
And so uh, a lot of people think like, oh, the business ran out of money. That's actually number two. Uh, the number one reason is because of disagreements between founders and there's not usually a disbursement agreement in place, which means that things fall apart, right? Divorce isn't messy because the word is messy. Divorce is messy because it is the fundamental unyoking and unwinding and unbinding of things that were never meant to be unwound to begin with. And that's why in business partnerships and in life, things get messy and, and that's the reason they fail. The reason I say that is because way back when Brittany and I first met, which is uh, almost a decade ago, actually, when we, when we first sat down and started dating, I've always been relatively intense and, and I didn't ask her out like, oh my gosh, you're so cute. Like, let's go. And no, it, I, uh, we sat down and we had lunch and the conversation began with, I was like, look, I think you're great. I think you're really cute and we get along and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I said, look, I'd, I'd love to actually just like, like, let's like actually date and do this seriously. Frankly, my thesis is like you either break up or get married and I'm not here to make friends. And uh, I think like, let's just kind of cut the BS. And the reason that, that I say that is because from literally from day one, our, our first date, the conversation was like, marriage and sex and sexuality and money and, you know, politics and like all of these things that you're not supposed to touch until much, 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 much later. Like, what's your opinion on this? If we have a child that has this dilemma, what, what is, I mean, that was all on the first date, like date number one. And the beauty of that, while that might be really intense is, is two things. First of all, she shared the same intensity, which I thought was fantastic. And the second is that that left the entirety of our relationship to actually flush out things that mattered instead of wasting our times on, on things that don't, right? So you, you, you can be physically attracted to somebody, but we both wanted depth and we found that in each other. And so the reason why I say that is fast forwarding to the business. When you have a decade of that level of communication behind you, are, are we perfect? Hell no. <laughs> are we experts? No, absolutely not. But, but what we do more than anything is we know how to communicate with each other in a way that challenges each other in a way that's not challenged without being challenging, so to speak, you know, without losing the respect, I guess I should say. But the second is, is that our communication and trust is really, really high. So when Brittany says, hey, Evan, I think we really need to do this and this based on what I've seen, I can say, great. And I trust that she can carry that out. Or uh, I can say, you know what? I really don't think that should be the way. Here's my opinion. And we can go back and forth in a really, really uh, challenging way, but it's still quite respectful. It takes so long to build that with a, a co-founder that for us, the ability to communicate that way, we're both building in the same track. We both love the problem. We love the business. We love the solution. There's trust and communication and that type of synergy is already there. It's just fundamentally really, really great personally, professionally. Um, I will add to those that are listening that we have not yet been blessed with children. So we have the freedom to be able to do that right now. Uh, so that is um, definitely the space of life that we're in that allows us to focus on the business. Uh, but <laughs> but it, it's, it really is great. Well, and I think that's a really good point, right? It, that adds a whole other layer of complexity, not only to the relationship, but also to the experience of being a founder. You pointed out something that I think is really interesting about your relationship, but also really critical to the journey of being a founder, which is this idea of deciding what you care about and what you don't. And we all know probably the biggest challenge of startup life and entrepreneurial life in general is on any given day, you've got like at least a thousand things that you could be focusing on and at least a thousand directions that you could go in. And figuring out what is really critical and what really matters is, is, might be the most difficult part. So I'm curious, how did this business idea even come up for you two? How did you decide, like, let's do this. Like, this is the thing that we want to do. And just know, once I hear that, I want to hear... Truly, like, what is Basewell? How did you come up with the idea? All the rest. But, but first, how did you two make this decision of this is the right direction? 
this is the the beauty of that a few minutes ago where we talked about kind of that season of stripping and wilderness and hardship. This is what came out of that, right? So that's why we're both eternally grateful for that season is outside of everything that I discussed. Fundamentally, we had learned, you know, the way that we were currently working wasn't what aligned with our principles as a couple and as a family and what we envisioned for our future. But there was something even deeper there, which is, you know, the fundamental problem that we experienced, I as an executive, Brittany as an operations executive in different ventures, us together as consultants working with lots of different ventures in a remote environment via COVID in 2020. What we found is that the there is really terribly fragmented infrastructure in businesses on how businesses support their employees, right? And it, it begins with training. It all, everything begins with training how, you know, if you work in an organization, they're going to say, okay, Casey, your expectation is to do X, Y, and Z, but we're going to give you the tools and the infrastructure in order to do that, right? That's the, the whole idea. But all of those different tools and structures and communication devices, and all they're all incredibly fragmented, which leads to um, a PwC study actually found um, there's this, this phenomenon of the undertrained employee. It's over $350 billion of waste every single year. So that's not in people. That's not the great resignation. That's not in people who are, this just fundamentally in people who are supposed to be doing really, really well, and they're working at like 80% of their capacity. That's just in the United States, by the way, and that's every single year. So it's a huge loss in potential and revenue because there is yet to be a company that actually bridges those gaps. So fundamentally, that's what we do at Basewell is we integrate into a company's tech stack and we map in real time the relationships between the training and how they're at the employees actually producing. And then we have an artificial, well, I say AI, it's really just machine learning. It's just an algorithm, but um, we have an algorithm that will uh, identify relationships between the two and then let managers know positive trends, negative trends, issues before they hit the bottom line, but then also um, what training will affect, have the best effect on an outcome or an expectation based on what has been historically proven, you know, significant and, and proven to work. So essentially what we're doing is we're eliminating that waste by showing in real time exactly where an issue aligns. I was speaking to a person earlier, earlier this morning, actually, one of my morning meetings, and she was uh, kind of talking about how her sister had worked at this job and Part of her process was going through the training, but then meeting with the manager and then an upper manager and then having this department to complain to. And, and all she really needed was to know how to do a couple of things, but she couldn't get the answers. And every time she had a meeting, somebody thought that she was doing poorly at her job and she thought the company was doing poorly at equipping her. That conversation would have shifted if the manager knew exactly where in their uh, process from training to production, the, the employee's production where issues arose. So now the conversation could be, hey, Casey, I know that you're coming with this problem. This, this, and this is immediately what we're doing as a company to fix it. Here's what you need to do on your part. Boom, conversation over, waste is lost. So that's what we're solving as a, as a company. And that's how the um, that's how the, the vision came out of uh, 2020 of seeing these fragmented tech stacks and working in this fragmented data, not being able to serve the way we needed to as consultants, um, as executives in our own company with our own employees, um, getting pretty friggin' frustrated actually with the solution and, and then just deciding to build it. And that project turned into Basewell. That's an incredible story. And I'm sure as kind of COVID and, and remote life has only increased in the last two years, we're seeing those issues only compounded. It's probably a month ago, I read a really interesting article that was talking about how particularly young employees and young employees at companies that weren't, weren't born to be remote and are really struggling, they don't get the FaceTime and they don't, no one is teaching them sort of the, the more sort of nuance and softer skills of how you show up in a meeting or, or culture or all of these other things. And I, but we're never going back to, or very, very few of us are ever going back to being in an office all the time. And I think we relied on proximity 
to learn a lot of these things and being able to actually quantify it and so that we can learn what's working and what isn't, um, that, that there is tremendous value in that. And not just, I think, in the concept of, of people being under-trained, but also in us being able to realize that people learn in very different ways. And so if you can start to identify, hey, this person, their productivity and their skills dramatically increase when they watch videos versus read something or whatever the case may be, you can then also start to create more diverse learning styles that are going to ultimately be more effective. This is very, very cool. You know, it's the company's responsibility. Well, let me rephrase. I believe that as an employee, you should be inspired and fascinated and motivated by your work. I believe that you live your best life when you wake up invigorated and come home fulfilled. I also believe that it's partly your responsibility to do that yourself, but it's also partly the company's responsibility to build an environment that can, in fact, be inspiring, fascinating, and motivating. Now, I partly believe, again, that that's not just through like having ping pong tables and beer on tap because not everything needs to be a WeWork in order to be inspiring. What I do believe is that that begins with your ability to produce functionally in your organization, right? Because you living an inspiring, fascinating, and motivating life and doing great work within an organization begins with being able to do great work within the organization, right? It's actually production instead of pretend. And and that's really where this comes into play is if you want the team around you, not even from a monetary standpoint, but, you know, I said a second ago, you know, it's people and then it's product and then it's profit. If you want people to do their best work in your organization, you fundamentally have to equip them to do their best work, which means if you're a company that says we equip our people to do their best work and you have no insights into how what you're stating actually turns into production, that means that fundamentally what you're doing is you're lying and you're in false positive. You might not be doing it intentionally, but if you have the the option to get data and you then don't accept it, then fundamentally what you're doing is, is you're starting to live in false positive and, and, and lie to yourself, right? Well, we empower our people. Okay, then, then how do you know fundamentally of what you're stating actually is interpreted correctly, applied correctly, and retained correctly across the workforce? Oh, well, they either miss or they hit, their, they hit or miss their sales quotas. Okay, so what you're telling me is that there's a gap of, well, we'll call it three months because it's usually quarterly in an organization where you have no idea how what you're stating is being interpreted, retained, and applied by an employee. And if they miss that quota and their quota was a million dollars, now you're telling me that you're willing to spend a million dollars in opportunity cost to make sure that Casey can do a job correctly. That's incredibly frustrating and that's not called empowering, that's called living in false positive. And that's something that we fundamentally believe in. It's like, look, it's 2022. It's time for people to stop bullshitting and companies to stop bullshitting about culture. Get rid of the ping pong tables and allow employees to actually do their best work in the organization. So that way their employees, you, can wake up and go, I'm really happy to be working in ABC company because I know that when I walk in, I'll be heard and seen and empowered in my job. And those are three fundamental things that people will do more through virtue signaling and social media than actuality in real life because it involves them looking in the mirror and looking at their own team. And so perhaps we highlight some of that and companies won't like that. But I fundamentally believe that if someone's going to practice what they preach, then they need the data behind it to actually execute and not just preach it. You, you know, does that make sense? Absolutely. You're giving me goosebumps, truly. And I, I, I very much appreciate you're no shrinking violet. Like the way you communicate about this and frankly, everything is, is, is bold. And that's the kind of, of communication that I think we really need in general, but especially around these concepts is we, we tend to dance around things a little bit when it comes to, um, how companies treat employees, what their sort of commitment to their employees needs to be and what that, what's actually at stake here. Um, so I, yeah, I very much appreciate that. Um, so I'm curious, What's the next stage? And you mentioned a little bit that you're preparing for your MVP, but what's the next stage of growth for Basewell? Like, what does that look like in this next phase? 
Yeah, we're about to launch our uh, our MVP. We're onboarding our first cohort in a little over a month. Um, waitlist signups have gone through the roof, so we've got a lot of people to to work with. And then you know we'll be raising our our seed round later in the year, and um, we've got a pretty long term roadmap. So. But obviously, the the immediate right in front of us is getting this first viability um, actually in the market and confirming the product market fit that we've already hypothesized on and somewhat confirmed before people play around in the product. You know, shipping minimum viable, raising that seed, and then uh, bringing in some other incredible engineers to uh, you know, for people that aren't engineers, you know, words get thrown around like machine learning and algorithms and artificial intelligence and all that, and they're actually different. <laughs> they're not exactly the same. I mean, algorithms go into all of them, but when you're building like a machine learning library, for example, and you're training a, a software to uh, take certain data inputs and, and learn from it, that takes a lot of data inputs. So that component is going to be built when we have more people actually using the software. And so the next big iteration of Basewell is uh, really flushing out the smart components to our software and building that library to be able to uh, uh, not only just from data, understand which habits and which training procedures produce good outcomes. But later down the road, our vision is to be able to predict based on an employee, an employee's position and the goals of that employee, be able to predict how that company can, uh, you know, predict the success of that position later in the future. And that's, uh, that's going to take quite a while to build. So we'll be bringing on those engineers later in the year. Yeah. So, and I'm sure it's part hypothesis at this point, but who are you thinking, what makes someone an ideal kind of uh, beta customer and beyond. What's what's your what's your thinking with that at this point? So there's two types of companies. There's enterprise and there's startups, right? So startups is a minimum of 25 people. Um, but the the big caveat for all is that you have to be doing some type of ongoing and consistent training. It has to be something that you're doing, not just something that you've done, because that means uh, otherwise it you know you can bring in some coach or go to some conference or something and, and get it out of the way and check the box and then you're done. That's not really our customer. Ideally, baseball works in really complicated environments because bridging segmentation is fundamentally what our software does really beautifully, right? So, you know, like McDonald's all over the world, multiple different locations, different standards, that would be a very uh, obviously kind of low hanging fruit to pick in the tree as far as a really big company. But but you, you get the idea as far as a big example. And uh, so ideally, that ideal customer is Series B funded and beyond, usually a minimum of like 50 to 100 million raised, a minimum of 250 employees all the way up to a, an IPO organization. And then scaling down below that, we start to see really big disbursement of how people actually use training. But the one consistent below that 250 mark, so 25 to 250 is that second bracket of startup. Below that uh, a, a 250 mark, we see a lot of people use tools like Notion um, that aren't fundamentally built for training. But the beauty of Basewell is we're connecting your training to your output and actually Notion is uh, one of our first integrations on being able to leverage people training in Notion um, and bring more power to the software you already use and integrate Notion and your training into Basewell to get immediate analytics from that. So we're actually, that's literally what I was working on this morning with our API uh, API lead. Um, so yeah, two different brackets, but um, re- realistically, it, it's if those metrics are hit, then there's an opportunity for, uh, for them to, to get on Basewell. When I work with startups and their founders, it's usually because they know they could be growing faster and they need some help to make it happen. Almost always, my first step with them is to take them through my growth audit process to diagnose and then help them fix the problem. But I can't work with everyone and I still want to help every founder grow. So I've created the growth audit quiz, which asks you some questions about your business and your process of turning a stranger 
into a loyal, happy customer to help you identify where you have the greatest opportunity to take a big leap forward. So go to a betterjones.com slash growth audit and take the growth audit now. You'll also have a chance to book some time with me to review your answers and together create an action plan to help you grow. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so for you and Brittany, as founders and as husband and wife, what's the next phase of your growth? What are the things that you guys are working on in terms of how you show up as as partners, but also how you show up as as leaders in this business? Yeah, uh, some of that. Some of that I'll talk to. Some of that I'll, I'll leave. Uh, I'll leave between us. I think the, the yeah. biggest component is <laughs> you, um, you, you don't need to truly open the curtain, but you know, the no, things I understand. That you're <laughs> you know, I mean, fundamentally. Our, our growth right now looks a lot like like the professional growth of the business because it's kind of you know eat sleep breathe baseball right now so um, it, it's pretty linear but but functionally there's there's two things in particular that we're focused on the first is being the best leaders we can be to our team and making sure that our people like I said are inspired fascinated motivated equipped and regardless of how hot or how long this thing you know baseball burns um, want to make sure that the people that are inside the organization feel you know supported and seen. And doing that collectively and doing that together in a way to where um, we can be a unit that is supportive instead of a lot of people, I think they'll look at like husband and wife or partner teams and go, okay, well, there's a lot of, you know, that immediately could lead to like politics and bias and none of that. We were very good at keeping things quite, quite linear inside the organization for that reason. Um, And then for us personally, as simple as it is like taking a vacation, like, like functionally, we haven't had really any time off in a long time. And mentally, you know, with all that stuff that we've gone through and that we've worked through, um, it's really been like, oh gosh, two, three years since we've like really had time. Like not quite, but like 2019 for sure was the last year that we really had time. So we've got some plans just to kind of take a breather and relax together and spend some time together. And um, you know, I think for for couples, making sure that you take time where you can just disconnect from everything and reconnect together is really important. Um, easier said than done when you're, you know, in, in a pandemic, but now that things are, are, you know, pretty much back to normal, it's a lot easier to go back and kind of escape a little bit together. And so it sounds small to some people, but to us, that's like a really big goal because it's a lot easier said than done when you've got a thousand things on your plate every day. You know? yeah, no. And I look, I think, especially in the last two years, one, the lack of vacation, every entrepreneur in the world can relate to those periods, but especially in the last two years when where the hell were you going to go? Um, <laughs> that I, That's why I everybody went to REI and got a tent so they could like go in the middle of nowhere and just, you know. <laughs> no, I love this. And I, I so appreciate everything you're talking about and, and your willingness to be sort of open and transparent. And I think everybody listening is going to be able to really relate to what you're talking about and appreciate your your openness, but also your thoughtfulness. And it's very clear that you spend time reflecting on this. It's not just uh, let's move through life and not really think about it. it. It's clear that you approach it with a very thoughtful sort of intention and energy, which is ultimately how we, I don't know, don't keep repeating the same mistakes or actually learn from the tough things that we go through and turn it into the gold that it sounds like you and Brittany have absolutely been able to do. Yeah, it's a, it's a process for sure, right? But I think to your point, and, and thank you for saying that, I want to, uh, you know, uh, affirm that for sure for, for saying that, but to your point, and so many people, it will in just any type of content, be it podcasts like this one, or just, you know, it's so easy to find the after that something that I was really frustrated with was like, okay, 
people will usually gloss over the middle part of like, there's an, an individual who runs quite a bit company talks about how like, oh, you know, you know, I remember the water and the power had turned off and, you know, we got evicted and like all this story, but it's kind of like an afterthought as it relates to like their, you know, Phoenix from the ashes, meteoric rise after that. I'm like, well, that's all fine and good, but see the vast majority of people, um, they don't know how to get out of that middle, right? That, that really, really messy, hard, tense middle. They don't know how to get out of that. And so to your point, you know, this is the second podcast that I've done after that hard season. Um, and I used to do podcasts like all the time. And part of that was because why I started getting back into it. So I, I needed a little bit of like a, a, a breather, obviously, just from things being crazy and starting a business. But um, part of the reason why I'm, I'm getting back into conversations like this is because I think more people need less of the bullshit about like how you're so great and more of the reality on like, okay, this moment of intensity and wilderness is something that you're going through something that you just went through or it's close enough in your memory to where you can articulate and recap what happened why and how you got out of it very clearly and have that be a topic of conversation so people who are trying to start a business because they got laid off from covid and uh, they couldn't do anything else except open that etsy shop and now they've got three employees and they're trying to figure out how to make it work because things are a little tense and the supply chain is you know people in that situation which is the most of entrepreneurs by the way are people that are in different versions of middle that's the reality. And I wish to your point and, and for what you're doing on the podcast, I, I want to affirm that because I think more people need that dialogue than just like, hey, I built this great unicorn because I'm like a white fleece wearing Stanford bro that got immediately from Stanford into an accelerator and then got funded $15 million. And I've got this great unicorn and we only do a million dollars a year in ARR. Like that story doesn't help anybody, but the person kind of pontificating about how great they are because the vast majority of America isn't that and they're not there. Right. And, and so, you know, not to immediately get on the soapbox, but I think that that that's so, so, so important to continue seeking those dialogues because it doesn't have to be done in a negative sense. Like, oh, my gosh, woe is me. My life is terrible. You can always come out of, the, of that wilderness. But gosh, more people need to just kind of share that that middle, if that makes sense. Or at least that's my thought. No, this is and get on the soapbox. I'm up here. Join me. This is uh, something I've been talking about for years is the idea that we only hear about the tough things when it's part of the redemption story. When it is, oh, I went through those tough things, but look at me now. I'm, I'm hyper successful. I've done all of this. And in, to your point, we gloss over it. And what winds up happening is when you are in the shit, when you are in the thick of it, you look around and it it doesn't feel like anyone else is there with you or has been there. And if they have, they don't remember it. It wasn't as bad. And 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 it's it's interesting. It's in what you were talking about before, if the one thing after another after another, right? Like we've we've a lot of us have been through that experience. And when you go through that and you just think, is this ever gonna end? Am I ever going to get out to the other side? Something's wrong with me or my life. And it can be incredibly challenging to remember that you're not alone in it, that lots of people have gone through it. And this is the hardest part. But if you can remember in the moment, okay, it, it totally sucks now. But I know at the core of me, like deep down in my gut, that something amazing is going to come out of this. And it's interesting. I don't know if you know the, the if you're familiar with the concept of post-traumatic growth. Uh, vaguely, not from a, like a scientific standpoint, but just from an understanding that it exists. 
It exists. And it's really, it's people go through traumatic experiences and some people achieve this this huge increase in sort of personal growth and development in all of these ways afterwards. And some people don't. And statistically speaking, the number one thing that is going to differentiate you between the person that experiences that growth and the person that doesn't is that you believe that it can. Like that's literally it. And so by talking about what we've been through and being a little bit more open about how incredibly hard it was, how disheartening, how we thought we would never get out of it, but we fucking did. And amazing things came came out of it. My hope is that people will hear that. And the next time they're in the shit, they'll be like, okay, wait, wait, wait. I've heard this before and it doesn't feel like it now, but like, I'm going to hold on to that little, that little glimmer of hope that this is going to turn into something magical for me. Well, I think it's also, if you're in that situation, it's also being super realistic, right? Because a lot of people say like, oh my gosh, you know, you just got to keep on going on. And then when you're done with this and life is going to be, but the problem is that, that I think people who haven't gone through like really deep, intense seasons of wilderness, what they don't understand is that you can't forecast when you're that deep inside of needing to figure out what and why and, and fix and all of these emotions you can't forecast. And like, logically, you can probably know that like things don't last forever, but you can't get your head around the concept. And so I think, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but hindsight's also really, really rosy because the natural inclination of the human body and the mind is to heal, right? And so, you know, if you get a physical wound, it's going to be healed in another 20 years. And when you recap it, it'll be like, yeah, that was a hard time. But, but you kind of forget some of the immediate sharpness and some of the, that, that, you know, exactly where you got cut and why and, and how, and, but, but it doesn't feel as sharp anymore. Um, which again, to your point, you know, when you're in that sharing some of that, that story, I think the, the one thought that I'd, I'd like to share very, very briefly is like, if you're, if you're listening to this and, and that's the season that you're in, give yourself permission to do two things. Uh, number one is to only make one decision. And number two is to force that one decision to be what's immediately in front of you. Right. So, so I often say, instead of like looking forward, look, looking you know forward at the dream ahead of you and in front of you and all these great things that people will say uh, just look down at the ground under your feet and, and walk that right and so a lot of people they want to go to the ends of the earth but before you go to the end of the earth you have to go to the end of your street before you do that you got to get up and so it's not this like bullshit motivation of like you know get up and start the day it's it's the reality is it, instead of focusing on like all of the million things that you need to do um, it's just one small, tiny little decision, literally tiny decision, because what you're doing is you're building an environment that allows you to still move when you don't want to. And when you can't, because the move is so micro that you don't feel it, but then compounded over the intensity of your journey and the length of your journey through that season, uh, you end up making a lot of strides. And so like when, when Brittany and I were going through it, we would have conversations like, okay, today we're going to do this one thing, right? Okay. So, uh, we just, you know, just, lost everything. Great. Or we had this conference that was going to be 5,000 people and then COVID happened and it ended up being 150 people two years later. Right. Or, you know, we, we, you know, we have all these things that, that we have to do. Okay. So what is this one thing? We got to get through this one moment right now. Um, and so I think when you kind of compartmentalize and break things down into the immediate, like legitimately what's right in front of you and, and give yourself permission not to think about further, just what's right in front of you and what's right under your feet for us was, was really powerful. Like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to do this one thing today. I got it done by 10 and I got it done. Okay, great. Um, I have enough energy to do one more thing. And when you keep focusing on like that one more, one more, one more, you're able to pace yourself at a rhythm that allows you to grow, but not be overwhelmed. And I think a lot of people, they focus on the latter and then they get really overwhelmed by the impossibility of it, which is impossible, by the way, um, when you're in that moment. And, um, and, and, and then of course you get stuck and you don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is, it is all about that 
uh, momentum. And you, you will hear me say it a million times, consistency beats luck every day of the week. And so if you can focus on those like small little actions and nail those on a consistent basis, that's going to lead to so much more growth and so much more success in the long run than having these, I don't know, strokes of brilliance every now and again. So, okay. As we wrap up, I always ask us three questions to, to finish this. So one, what is something that being a founder makes you grateful for? I think being a founder makes me grateful for an opportunity to, I don't know, it's, I guess it sounds kind of corny, but it's a legitimate answer. Like, like legitimately dream and create so many companies excel by or in their mind, they excel by kind of stifling the creativity of people. And the cool thing about being an entrepreneur is you can legitimately have a vision about a better world with a certain product or service or action in it, and then go and do that action or product or service and go and create that better world and see the residual effects of your product. And so, uh, and your, your activity, I mean, and so, um, I think that's really, really, really cool just really fundamentally cool is like you can build something people want. You can build something that positively impacts the world and you have the freedom to dream and be creative and actually make it happen. Um, I, I, that, that type of, of kind of very ambiguous nonchalant, you know, opportunity is something that I really, really gravitate towards. Um, and so I think that's fundamentally something that I'm really grateful for. I love that. Um, what's one book or movie or YouTube video or blog post or whatever about being a founder or that is related to being a founder that you wind up sharing all the time or thinking about or talking about? The hard, the hard thing about hard things by Ben Horowitz is fantastic. Ollie Draskell's The Leadership Gap is fantastic about identifying some of the uh, blind spots that you have in your own leadership styles. Mark Andreessen's A16Z archives, when they moved to their new website in 2020, they archived it back on their site. You have to Google it, but specifically page 154 of the A16Z archives, where he talks about the fallacies of entrepreneurship that a lot of people don't realize until they're in the thick of it. Um, highly, highly recommend that. Uh, Tim Grover, who trained incredible uh, people like Michael Jordan and Kobe, wrote two books. Uh, you should read them in this order, Relentless and then Winning. Talks about the mindset of actually going out and doing incredible things, and then the mindset of continuing to be on top and how to stay on top, right? Getting it is easy. It's keeping it that's hard. And finally, uh, uh, what was the book? Um, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink um, is fantastic. Jocko is, is very, very, very well-spoken and, and leave his, his um, you know, partner with Echelon Front and then also in the book. Those would be at least what comes to mind right off the top of my head would be some of my immediate resources for people that are looking to kind of define some of that grit that comes with the entrepreneurial journey uh, in a way that is sustainable and actionable. Those would be the resources I would gravitate towards. Awesome list. And last but not least, if you could tell your younger self right before you made the jump to become a founder, if you could give your younger self advice, what would you say? Again, a, a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think for, for one thing, it, it's, well, I have two very brief things, actually. Um, the first is that you don't necessarily need help. You need time. So when I, well, I had a, and, uh, you know, I think everyone struggles with this at some point, but really big imposter syndrome. Um, uh, we, even when I was in real estate and, you know, being very successful by that industry standards, I, I still didn't really feel like I used to say, you know, people used to say like, you're getting an award for being great at your job and you know, all this stuff. And I used to say, no, I'm, I'm somebody is trying to praise the fact that I'm just not shit at my job. And those perspectives are actually quite different. And so what I mean by that is, um, 
I, I would seek like help. And I, I, I wound up partnering with some people that w- weren't good partnerships. And I wound up, um, you know, moving and, you know, hiring like coaches and mentors that gave bad advice and ended up setting me back. And, um, because I was constantly like through that imposter syndrome of recognizing like, oh my gosh, I need help because a lot of people will tell you that you need help specifically, right? You need their help and it usually comes at a certain fee. Um, but, but the reality is not everybody needs help. What you really need is time. And you just need time to legitimately like figure it out, get in a dark room, be with yourself for a second and think and act. And, um, there's so much noise that it's hard to do, uh, until you, you recognize the the opposite, you know, you go through that season. Um, and then fundamentally the, the last, the last piece to that, cause it was a two-parted uh, answer on my part, um, is that, just don't attach your identity to a certain title or a certain level of success. Um, and I think that's why so many people struggled with COVID now that I, I realize it is because when the thing that you do to attach your identity is immediately stripped from you, then all of a sudden you have to question your worth as a human being. And I think they're separated. And for me, um, I did a lot of stupid shit in my early twenties. Like I spent a lot of money and I got the sexy, you know, downtown view apartment. And, you know, I just, I just did all this stupid cause I thought that's like what success looked like you know, and, and I remember I was going to buy these like really fancy cars. And I was just like wasting and thinking back on it now, I'm like, you know, I could have taken that money that I spent the the, um, all that fancy shit that I didn't even care about. I just thought that other people cared about it. And in order to look successful and be successful, that's what I had to do. And I could have invested in some great friends companies. Um, I could have given that to charity and done some incredible work and done things that like I care about. Um, cause I don't care about fancy. I don't care about cars. I don't care about, I, I, I care about like making an impact fundamentally. And, and that's pretty much it. I'm a pretty simple person. Um, and so I could have really fast forwarded a lot of time by not wasting my time, like going out to fancy dinners just because that's what like people who make a certain amount of money do. Um, I just, I, I can't stand that shit anymore. And I'm glad that I grew out of it, but you know, for a couple of years of my life, like that was how I was living. And it's just, I don't know, maybe it's good to get out of my system, but it's, it, it's, I think it's a little silly. So if, if I were to tell my younger self two things, those would be the first two. Um, and then I probably would shut up because a lot of lessons you have to learn the hard way and I probably let myself <laughs> yeah. go back through it. <laughs> that, that is the truth. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. So anybody that's listening and they want to learn more about you or about Basewell, where should they go? Um, the only social that I'm actually active on is Twitter. So I'm at Twitter at Hey, E C S H E Y E C S. And then if you, you know, if you like the idea of Basewell, uh, sign up, it's not even a, like a sales pitch. We're not even charging for the app right now because we're bringing on people, uh, just go to baseball.com and join the waitlist. Um, we'd love to learn about you and your company and how you're training. And hopefully if you believe in building an environment that equips your people, um, we can help you get there. So that would be baseball.com. And then, uh, I'll be on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much, Evan. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode on the High Growth Founders Podcast. If you love what you heard, subscribe to the show of whatever podcast platform you're tuning in from. And look, much like this show, I love getting into the good, the bad, and everything in between. So please feel free to express yourself in the reviews of the show. And Consider subscribing to the High Growth Founders newsletter by going to highgrowthfounders.substack.com. You'll get the show delivered to your inbox every single week, plus stories, insights, and actionable tips from my work helping founders accelerate their growth and from my own journey, accelerating my own. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we are here to learn from one another. So please, If the episode made you think of a founder who is leveling up in their business, take a screenshot and share it with them. Okay, that's all I've got. In love and growth, I am out of here. See you next time.